All right, we're in Genesis 14 for our study today, and we want to talk about the fact that the battles that we face as Christian people, these battles are the Lord's battles. If you'll look at your bulletin outline, you'll note the first thing is that there were two rival federations of kings that came out against each other. In the reading of the scripture text this morning, we did not read verses 1 through 7, but primarily they indicate that the kings of the Jordan plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, all these names, I give Dale credit. <laughs> He's struggling with those names. I struggle with these names. They're, they're not part of our vocabulary, are they? <laughs> Zor, that's better, that's easier to say. Five all total came out against four kings headed by Keter Lamer, king of Elam, five against four. So that's the two federations. you got five kings on one side, four kings on the other side, and the battle lines are drawn. But the four-king federation was the stronger of the two. They had been sweeping over the northeastern territories, and in addition, verse 7 states, they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazan Tamar. I was hoping to get a map up here, but I didn't get it. Hazan Tamar is located directly south of the Dead Sea. So if you think of the Sea of Galilee, that little thing here, then you have the Jordan Valley, then you have the Dead Sea, and Hazan Tamar is way down here below the Dead Sea. And the Amorites and the Amalekites are up on one side, so you've got a kind of a U-shaped conquering that's going on here in the land of Palestine. What the Bible atlases do not show is the exact location of the Valley of Sedim, mentioned in verse 8, in which were located the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and so on. And the Bible atlases don't show where they are because the ruins of these cities are submerged in the shallow waters of the south part of the Dead Sea since God's fiery uh, destruction. But our text is dealing with a time before. So they have a pretty good idea where they are, but uh, they're not visible today. Now here's the question. Why would the federation of four kings come against the federation of five? Look at verse 4. It tells us that for 12 years, the federation of five had been subject to Keterlamar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Well, what does that mean? Well, simply put, it means the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and all the others listed there stopped paying their tribute. So what's a tribute? Well, a tribute is, hey, you are a conquered uh, nation, and the conqueror has slapped you with taxes that you will pay yearly to us for the privilege of existing. <laughs> so that's what is going on here. So in the 13th year, they rebel, which means they stop paying their taxes. Well, if your income is based upon uh, that kind of in input, uh, then the battle lines were drawn. And they were drawn in the Valley of Sedim, which had natural impediments. Tar pits are mentioned, verse 10. And as the battle ensued, the tar pits claimed the lives of the soldiers of the Five King Federation, while others fled into the hills, verse 10 the latter part. What was the end result? Well, the end result was this. The four kings whipped the five kings. 
and in addition, verse 11, seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. And they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Oh, now we, we are learning some more about what's going on here with Brother Lot. He has now moved into the city. Verse 11 tells us that in the plundering, which usually follows a successful battle, the four king federation entered the city of Sodom, where Lot was living, and they conscripted all of his possessions with him and carried him off into captivity. That's what these nations did back then. You know, they come in, whip your city, carry your people into captivity, take everything they could get their hands on, and leave you impoverished. Now likely, Abram would never have known about this at all since he was living on the northwest side. So here we go with that line of Jordan. He's living over here and up here, well away from the battle. But verse 13 informs us that a soldier in the battle escaped and reported to Abram what had happened to Lot. Poor Lot. Oh, in trouble again because of his association with Sodom. He was swept up by the fortunes of war, and in his case, he was now a captive and being carried away far to the north. Verse 14 mentions the town of Dan. Dan was the foremost town in Israel, about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if we go to our imaginary map, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea down here. Dan is up here above Galilee, about 40 miles north of that, of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 15 references a town called Hobah, which itself was north of Damascus. So here's the Sea of Galilee, and Dan's up here. And then Hobah is yet up here. Damascus is over here, and it's north of Damascus. It's in Syria. Well, guess what? That's where the uh, Four King Federation is heading. They're heading back home. They've whipped everybody down south, and they're heading to uh, Damascus outside of Israel and a part of the Syrian Empire. Wow, I mean, just think about this. This King Keterleomer was moving with the speed of Nazi Germany's Blitzkrieg tactics. Blitzkrieg means lightning war. You know. He was going into the Sodomite Federation. He hit fast. He hit hard. He hit thoroughly. The kings of the fivefold federation hardly knew what hit them. Before they could do much in terms of resistance, they found themselves chained hand and feet in manacles trudging north on the prison routes of slavery, soon to be sold at the auction block to the highest bidder never to return home again. So, Ketelamers' federation, and they might have been only four kings, but boy, they were, they were swift and powerful. And on they were. On they went. Now, you should know that the criticisms, criticisms of this account by the Bible critics is that none of these cities existed. They are just simply myths. This never took place. These cities don't exist. We don't know where they are, and so forth. 
Well, that criticism has been fully debunked by the archaeologists' finds between 1974 and 1976, so that's not too far back. About 20,000, 20,000 cuneiform tablets from this region were found. A cuneiform is um, engravings in stone. They're stone tablets, so they last, right? <laughs> we're not talking parchment and ink here. We're talking about somebody that carved all of the history in tablets of stone. 20,000 of them have been found in this area. And they discovered among the ruins of this region these cuneiforms that contain early biblical names like Jehovah, Abram, Esau, David, Michael, Israel. They're all on these tablets. But more important for our study, they name the places on these tablets that were found in 1979, a few years later, and guess what? All five cities have been identified. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulim, and Bela or Zor. And they're found in that biblical order. If you will allow a science, true science, to do its work, you will find that it supports the Bible. And we don't need science to support the Bible for our faith. Because God is true even when men are liars. But it's encouraging to see that true science, not speculation, will indeed support what the scripture says. Well, you have these two federations. And they came in the four federations. One, Sodom is a prisoner. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah are all prisoners. Their possessions have been conscripted. And they're heading to Damascus. Being Damascus being the capital of the empire of Syria. All right, second point of our outline. Abraham has a little lightning speed of his own. Once Abraham was informed as to what had happened to his nephew Lot, he immediately sprang into action. Verse 14, he called out his 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit. I think this gives us a better idea of the extent of Abram's wealth that's mentioned in verse 2. How would you like to feed 318 men every day, day in and day out? Oh, and I'm not even talking about their families, but just them. How would you like to do that every day? What would that cost you? Well, I did a little bit of mathematics at five dollars a meal that would be three meals a day four thousand seven hundred and seventy dollars a day a day if we say oh well five dollars for breakfast but it should be more like ten dollars each for lunch and supper and that brings the total to seven thousand nine hundred and eighty dollars a day or a total of two million nine hundred and twelve thousand seven hundred dollars for the year and that's just for food. That's not clothing. That's not housing. And that's not counting the families. Abram was very, very wealthy. But praise the Lord. Man, he used his wealth for the glory of God. And that's the, that's the thing we should take to heart. Verse 13, as a Hebrew, he's called a Hebrew, 
living in a hostile land, Abram prudently trained his servants to protect themselves, yes, but also their households in the event of enemy attack. He was allied with three friends, all Amorites, all brothers, verse 13, but you know we cannot always count on alliances in dangerous situations. These men were good, but not always the case. Do you know that just two weeks ago it was reported on the news that a Jewish delicatessen in Paris was attacked by Islamic terrorists the end of January? But our president just last week called it a random act of violence. Politically, the United States is an ally of Israel. An ally, an ally of Israel. But we fail to acknowledge the attack on Jewish patrons in a kosher deli as an intentional Islamic assault on Jews. I listened to the White House spokesman spin it. He said, well, you know, <laughs> there were other non-Jews in the deli at the time of the incident. That's our explanation as to why we wouldn't step in and help. Thankfully, Abram had some reputable allies, allies, but we cannot always count on them. Even so, 300 trained men, think about that, from his own household, plus the three-brother alliance, could not outnumber the armed forces of four kings. But look at this. Abram did not hesitate to pursue these enemies who had kidnapped his nephew Lot and issue them a decisive defeat. Okay, how could Abram have beaten such a formidable foe? Yes, he had a military strategy. Verse 15 says, During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. What's that? Well, a surprise attack at night. And a surprise attack at night has often won the battle for armies. Gideon, with but 300 men, was awakened by God in the night. And we read, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it to your hand. Judges 7, verse 9. What was his weaponry? If you remember your story, the Bible story, he used lights inside of clay pitchers or jars, and loud trumpet blasts to terrorize the enemy to fight against each other. Now listen to Melchizedek's analysis of Abram's battle. Verse 19 of our text. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave a tenth of everything. Genesis 4, verse 19 and 20. In verse 22, Abraham said, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And brethren, there's no other explanation. There's no other explanation of how Abraham and his little few hundred servants could go against these four kings and their armies that had ravished the land from Dan to Kadesh in the land of Palestine. It is the truth that God often works with little insignificant things, people, so that the end result may be attributed to his mercy, to his grace, and not, not to men's prowess. 
We read today in our meditation reading the account of the boy David. Hey, just a teenager with absolutely no experience as a soldier. Nonetheless, he confronted the giant Goliath of Gath, the champion of the Philistine army. And you can tell, if you read the whole text, why he was the champion. The guy was monstrous, nine foot tall. While all Israel cowered in fear at the magnificent size and strength of this warrior, David loaded his shepherd's bag with but five smooth stones and a sling. And we read, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. See, all the accoutrements of war. And a shield, too, there was. Because <coughs> he had a shield bearer carrying his shield for him. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Wow, bold tack for talk for a little whippersnapper, right? <laughs> A little teenager out there, I'm going to knock you down and cut your head off. Maybe a bit naive. No, no, none of that. He goes on, he says, Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 and following. Wow. Little boy David, little teenager David, knew something about the God of Israel. Abram before David did not rely, did not rely upon his military strategy, but on the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, verse 22. That's the only place of victory in those battles that we face in life, spiritual or physical. The battle is the Lord's. And we can be thankful it is because what are we against such formidable Faithless Israelites who spied out the land of promise came back with this report. Faithless Israelites. Here's what they said. They gave Moses this account. Well, we went into the land to which you sent us, and yeah, it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people... The people that live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified, and they are very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. 
The Nephilim are the descendants of um, Anak. We seem like we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and, and we look the same to them. Numbers 13, verse 27 and following. Grasshoppers? Yes, grasshoppers. That is what we are in and of ourselves as we come up against the wicked and powerful forces of the world. And if we look at the size and strength of such enemies, our fear will overtake us and we will fail to act. Men calculate the odds in such situations. Jesus applied this to his disciples. He asked them to do a little bit of counting. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Luke, Luke 14, verse 27 and following. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, either Christ is your champion or he's not. Either we calculate the cost of being his disciple and relinquish our own wisdom and strength leaning solely on Christ, or we don't. But for Jesus, there is no halfway commitment. And in Abraham's faith, we see the same. For him, the odds did not look good, if we're going to count odds. But the enemy had captured his nephew, and they were en route to Syria, foreign country. So Abram looked to God to enable him, and in that was his victory. Melchizedek says, verse 29, Blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemy into your hands. There was the victory. Wow. Quite a story. Quite a part of Israel's history. Quite a part of Abraham's family's history. And certainly for Lot. Now what lessons do we take from this for our times? Well, let me suggest some to you. Number one, when a brother is in danger, you should waste no time to act favorably. Don't waste any time. If the danger is physical, what then? You know, needs that are physical, they become pretty obvious, don't they? If a person does not have food, then they need food. Not rocket science. If they have insufficient clothing, they need clothes. If they do not have a place to stay out of the cold, they need housing, and so on and so on. Even secular society acknowledges these needs and attempts to alleviate such through soup kitchens and thrift shops and shelters and temporary housing and so on and so on. 
And this has so much been the case in America that abuses have arisen. It is reported that there are now 43 million people using food stamps. And that many of them cash in those stamps or sell them to buy liquor and cigarettes and so on that the food stamps wouldn't normally cover. They do that instead of food. What is that? Well, that is charity gone amok. Handouts can have that detrimental effect. People can become used to such, and it won't be long before an entitlement mentality develops wherein people think that society owes them these things. When many could work, could supply their own needs. But why work when you can get a free handout? What's the Christian answer? You see a brother in need. You see a sister in need. The Christian response is we address the need immediately. Let me give it to you. James 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. James is postulating this. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Stay fed. But does nothing about his physical needs... What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2, 15 through 17. Well, James, they had these needs in Bible days. And he tells the Christian community how to handle them. Bestowing benedictions. Go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Be well fed does little to alleviate the physical need. James calls this dead faith, and so it is. And it's dead faith because God has commanded us concerning these issues. When the crowds were warned by John the Baptist to repent of their sins, they questioned him on the practical applications of repentance. Oh, let's see, repentance. Well, how do we do that? Tell us what to do, John. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Luke 3, verse 11. Well, how's that repentance? It's dealing with the sins of greed, the sins of selfishness, the sins of isolationism, the sins of despising the poor. A lot of sins have been dealt with here. If you have two of something and you see your brother in need, take Share what you have, be it food or clothing, and so on. Job put it this way. Listen to Job in the Old Testament. It's wonderful. Job says, If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from birth I guided the widow. If I have... If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in the court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. Job 
for I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Then these also would have been sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on top. Wow. Job 31, 16 and following. So Job, Job, even Job understood back in Old Testament times the importance of using one's wealth. And if you read the first chapter of Job, you'll see he also was very wealthy in the Abraham category because God blessed these men for thinking righteously and doing righteously. Do we know, brethren, that supplying such physical needs to the brethren is a service to Christ? Jesus put it this way, well, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, for, for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came, you came to visit me. Matthew 25, verse 34 through 36. And when the disciples could not <laughs> remember doing all these things, Jesus answered, The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Matthew 25, verse 40. So what do we do if people have physical needs? We address those physical needs immediately. The world takes care of its own. We need to take care of our own, God's people. Okay. But then, what if the danger is not physical? What if the danger is physical? No, but spiritual, yes. Then what? Paul writes in Galatians 6, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him Gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. James puts it this way. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James 5, verse 19 and 20. And Paul writes it this way, But as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet, yet, do not regard him as an enemy but warn him as a brother. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. So we have people that have spiritual problems, and here we are instructed how we are to relate to them. In the case of Lot, he was in danger both physically and spiritually. His spiritual danger had been evident in the 
in uh, his many wrong choices, not the least of which was residency in Sin City. His physical danger was now threatening his life and his livelihood. He and his wife were captives, and his possessions were plundered, verse 16. So Abraham spared no time, no no lack of effort trying to help. Let me ask you a searching question. Would you have been willing to help greedy, self-centered, arrogant, know-it-all Lot? Or would you have said, well, you know, he made his bed, now he can sleep in it. When times like this arise, keep in mind James' admonition. Here's what he said. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole What is James saying? He's saying, you know, you and I aren't perfect either. And we're going to stumble spiritually. We're going to make some wrong decisions, some sinful decisions. We're going to do things that hurt one another. We're going to do things that jeopardize our families spiritually. But we all do it. So he's saying in a sense, that is no excuse for you not to help, not to step in. So that's the first lesson to learn here. We are to act quickly to help a brother or a a sister in need, be the need physical or the need spiritual. A second lesson here is that God allows for and even commends going to war for a just cause. Remember here that Abram summoned his 318 trained men to go and rescue Lot. What do you mean trained? Trained in what? Well, trained not only in the art of self-defense, which every uh, family should be trained in, but pretty well acknowledging the fact that we have a right to defend our families and when someone threatens them with harm, but also trained in the art of offense. The pursuit of an enemy with every intention of reversing his evil plans by any means. This will mean at times a commitment to war. And Solomon says, there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war and a time for peace. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8. Diplomacy has its place among reasonable men. It's not wrong to try that first. James says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James 5, verse 20. But having said that, there would have been no talking to the four kings of this federation who had fought and won the battle in the Valley of Sedim, the Federation of Five had lost. Their cities had been sacked, their people taken captive, their goods plundered, and now you're going to try to talk them out of all of that. 
give us back the captives and give us back the goods. They were not going to abdicate to Abram's household militia of 318 and give back all that they had won. That's where diplomacy fails. ISIS just in the last two weeks beheaded 21 Christians from Egypt. The world stood by, did not. On addition, they burned over 40 people alive for their Christian faith. We need to realize there is such a thing as evil in the world. And those who promulgate evil are wicked men. There's no talking to them. There is no reasoning with them. There is no appeal to what is right or moral. They live by their own rules, and God uses righteous men as a foundation for his actions. And this is why the Old Testament contains calls from God to deal ruthlessly with the various pagan nations who came against Israel, God's people. It's the right to punish evil and to bring lawlessness to justice. Peter makes it crystal clear that we are not to be naive when it comes to assessing the times in which we live. In talking about God's action, he tells us, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Oh, loving, merciful God, the God of, who's going to spare people. No. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. I'm reading scripture. Putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to come up to that study here. By burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. Take a lesson from God. Say, well, I have no problem with God dealing with the evil of our world. My problem is in the assertion that we should go to war. Did you know that most of the time, most of the time, God used his people Israel to fight back and fight against the evil present in their day? Yes, he was with them. He enabled them. As here with Abram, rescuing Lot. But remember, Abram got on his camel or his donkey, as the case may be. He rallied his trained servants, and he went after Keterlamer as far as necessary, even if it be Hobah, north of Damascus. And verse 15 says, During the night, to attack them and rout them. For what? Verse 16, To recover all the goods and to retrieve Lot his possessions together with the women and the other people. I think we would be terribly naive to think that no one got killed in that attack. To think that Abraham lost none of his servants in the fight or that soldiers in Keterlaomer's army escaped unscathed. Now the point is not whether people died or that war is hell on earth, as one soldier has said. This is true. 
The point is that there is evil in the world because Satan is in the world. And Jesus tells us he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he's speaking his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. Well, you cannot negotiate, brethren, with liars. You cannot sweet-talk your freedom from your captors who are hell-bent on decapitating you for just being a Christian. And I see mostly in this text that Abraham was not, he was not condemned by God for his fight to win back Lot. No, he was commended. Verse 19. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. See, he's exonerated for his actions by the highest court that there is in heaven. He's blessed for having done what he did. I know we Christians don't like to fight. The whole idea of going to war very unpleasant because we know people are going to die get hurt, maimed and so on but as evil progresses and raises its ugly head and begins to overpower righteousness on earth then those who are righteous need to take a stand Abraham did and he won the prize God Abraham he got his, his uh, nephew Lot back and the women and people of Sodom and all the possessions as well. And then there's a third lesson here, and we'll close with this. Whatever just repercussions our brethren reap for their sin, our task is to rescue, to heal, and to restore. We think, I, I think it's the normal way we think. Hey, Lot is just reaping what he sowed. <laughs> it was his greedy choice to grab the Jordan Valley for his homeland and Sodom for his residence. He deserves what he got. You know, you know what I would say to that? All of that may be quite true. But Abraham did not think that way. And neither should we. Instead, we are to think like Paul, who said, To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. Saving here, I'm sure, speaking of the spiritual salvation, but applying as well. Doing what needs to be done to help that person who's weak. Be they weak in faith, or in Lot's case here, uh, weak physically because he's a captive. Peter's perspective. The end of all things is near, writes Peter. Therefore be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And above all, above all, love each other deeply. Because, why? Love covers over a multitude of sins. Yeah, Lot has sinned up to here. I'm sure Abraham has had it up to here with nephew Lot. But sin and all, Lot is loved 
by Uncle Abraham. And Abraham has his little homemade army, and he's going to use it to the best advantage because he loves God. Peter goes on to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever, whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So writes the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 and following. Peter doesn't say, you know, you got the kind of people like Lot in your church. And they got into trouble because of their own sinful choices. Well, just let them stew a little bit in that, you know. They deserve it. They, maybe they need to learn a hard lesson here. No, he doesn't say that. He says that we ought to be loving them deeply and that love will cover over those multitude of sins, which means it'll allow you to treat them in a loving manner and you won't <coughs> see that sin jumping out every time you look at them. You know, you know, they did. No, love will cover it over. And you can say, brother, sister, <laughs> I have been there. I have been there. I have disobeyed God. I have broken his commandments. I've been chastised by God. I've been there. And if I can help, I want you to know I'm here for you. That's how we're to love one another. In churches, churches have splits. They have tension among families. They have families that leave Saranara, I'm out of here, not caring what their departure is going to do to the people they leave behind both spiritually and economically. I'm out. They're all into self. God forgive them, but let us also learn how to love in this hard, hard situation. Abraham teaches us this. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Hard word this morning. Oh, I know, when we've been hurt, when we have been hurt by a brother or sister, our, our tendency is to double down, tuck in, grab hold of our feelings, feed our animosity, feed our bitter spirit, instead of being forgiving and loving and reaching out. James says, uh, hey, we all sin. None of us are perfect. Pray that you'll help us. And Lord, there may be some here this morning who are outside of Christ. They would never do what Abraham did. They would say of Lot, ah, <laughs> let him go to Syria and good riddance. 
no love in their heart, no love for others, and no love for God. It all begins there with no love for God. Forgive us, Lord, if we're that person this morning, and grant to us what we see in Abraham, a heart of faith, a heart of love. Yeah, he was outnumbered, but he trusted God. and He didn't count his little band of homemade servants, soldiers, as the basis for his victory, but he looked, he looked to God. And Lord, there are some here probably that need to look to you. They're trying to fight their battles, their fears, their frustrations, their ignorance, their lack of faith. They're trying to fight it in their own strength. They question God all the time, question his word, question the outcomes, what he does in the world. And they try to make God guilty, 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 so they can feel healthy, healthy, healthy about themselves. Lord, forgive such arrogance. Grant faith and repentance to those and bring them today out of their darkness into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. For your honor and their, and their good, we pray these things. 